Right, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Clio Talk. My name is Matt. And I'm RC. And we have a uh, special guest, uh, Ben. Ben is a uh, land value tax expert and a person who is currently working on a campaign out in Seattle. Um, ben is a uh, very interesting man who is uh, very well trained in the world of uh, economics. Uh, ben, do you have any other uh, intro stuff for yourself? That pretty much sums it all up. Yeah, um, I care a lot about taxes and uh, local politics, and so that's that's why I'm here. Yeah. And uh, we got Ben on because uh, we saw the uh, mayor of Kansas City, Mayor Quentin Lucas, quote tweeting uh, about the Detroit land value tax uh, yeah. initiative and saying something along the lines of uh, Kansas City could do something similar. Uh, I only know of one person who mm-hmm. is... Uh, able to uh stan henry george this much so uh ben could you give us like a brief rundown of what exactly is land value tax and uh how would it impact a city like detroit or a city like kansas city that's probably a lot to go off of but give us a summary oh i i thought you would never ask okay so a land value tax basically how it works is it's just like a property tax but the only difference is that rather than taxing both land and the improvements, like the buildings and whatnot that sits on top of the land, a land tax focuses only on the underlying land, right? The main benefit of this is that it comes with economic efficiency that you don't see in any other taxes. And the reason why this works is because the supply of land is fixed, right? It doesn't go up, doesn't go down, no matter what you do to it in terms of taxation or really anything else for that matter. So whenever you tax um, the production, whenever you tax, say, uh, uh, soda, for example, right, through like a sugar tax, right, what this does is it raises the price and decreases the supply of the of, of, of soda in the market, right? But with, or, in, and this is true for pretty much anything else, right? But land is very special because like I just said, it's fixed in supply. So taxing it um, doesn't change the supply whatsoever. So you don't have any deadweight loss going on here. And uh, as a result, the tax burden is felt entirely by the people who are holding on to the land. It doesn't get passed on to tenants or anything like that. So it's super efficient. And the best part about this in terms of uh, implications for public policy is that there is such a large volume of land wealth in our cities that we could rely entirely on land taxes and not have to rely on sales tax, taxes on improvements, taxes on income, or anything else to fund government services. And this is kind of the main thing that was spun off from Henry George when he first wrote about land value tax in the 1870s was this idea of the simple tax movement. Yeah, and so oh, uh, how this relates? Yeah, for, yeah sorry. For people who uh, have been listening to us for a little bit, uh, we do have an episode where we have another um, expert on to uh, talk about municipal finance. Uh, I think that was during our Hunter Larkin mm. uh, series uh, that we were doing. I think it was part two of Hunter Larkin. Yeah, part two of Hunter Larkin, where we uh, kind of peruse uh, the city of Goddard's finances, and we did have an expert on for that. And uh, she was saying that most cities try and do are either funded through a property tax or a sales tax, which, I mean, mm-hmm. this land value tax would basically mean that you didn't have to do either of those, right? 
Yeah, right. So Kansas City relies on uh, anywhere between 20 to 22 percent of their uh, funding comes. And I'm talking Kansas City, Missouri, of course. Uh, anywhere between 20 to 22 percent comes from sales tax. And then another roughly 50 to 60 percent comes from property taxes, depending on what year you're looking at. Right. So through this, you would not have to, like you said, yeah, you wouldn't have to rely on taxing buildings anymore. You wouldn't have to rely on taxing consumption, taxing labor or anything like that. Um, and that's what's really interesting to me. What's what's kind of the big appeal about it is that um, it's a tax on a use of a commodity that nobody created and the value of which is determined entirely by the public. Right. So it's returning publicly created value back into the hands of the public treasury via taxation. So I think my major question is, uh, you know, you normally when you're appraising uh, like the value of something, you usually go for the like property appraisal, such as here in Kansas City, we mm -hmm. had a big issue with property, you know, being appraised way too high. How do you appraise just purely the value of the land if the land is not usually what's being sold? It's like a building that's being sold. Right. Yeah. It's a, so we've gotten very good over the years because we've been, I mean, humanity has been doing uh, land value assessments for as long as people could, this, for as long as governments could be collecting taxes, right? Um, and thanks to a lot of um, recent developments in especially GIS, we've gotten incredibly accurate at assessing land value separate from, from assessments. Unfortunately, for a variety of historically contingent reasons. A lot of counties just value the entire property, right? As like one whole thing. We look at land and the capital on top of it is the same thing, which is kind of nonsensical. Um, but uh, what you can do, some, some actual like practical ways to go about this, for example. Um, so parking lots, probably critical support to parking lots, I guess, in that there's basically no improvements on them. It's just empty, vacant land, right? And so um, whatever you value that, whether it's the government or the market that's valuing that, that um, you can you can create a a map of uh, empty lots throughout a city, and then kind of use a, a geospatial regression analysis to create a sort of gradient right across a city to figure out what does adjacent land value look like. So if you have uh, a, a parking lot right next to a another lot plot of land with like a skyscraper on it, for example, right? You can pretty much say that the land underneath the skyscraper is going to be about at like the same value as the empty parking lot right next to it. Because I mean, fundamentally, what really is the difference between the two in terms of land use, right? Um, and so, yeah, you can create a, a gradient map to help with that. Another way too, is that whenever we tear down buildings, right? For a brief moment in time there, the um, the land is empty, right? Except for, I guess, the rubble. Um, so you can also do that. There's a lot of different tools, long story short. And from uh, previous conversations that I've had with you um, about this, uh, from my understanding, I, as, a, as a layman, I don't, I'm not really, cons I wouldn't consider myself an expert in this uh, at all, especially compared to you. But uh, if you the comparison between the parking lot and the skyscraper, although the value of the land is the same, so the tax on that land would be the same, the tax burden is split between everyone living in the skyscraper, whereas the parking mm -hmm. lot owner has to take the brunt of the entire tax bill. Right? Right. And this is, yeah, this, this is the great appeal of it, which is that um, fundamentally your tax burden is completely agnostic to how you use the land. 
So um, if you decide to sit on the land and do literally nothing with it, you're going to be paying the exact same tax as someone who decides to use the land productively. And so what this does is it turns land ownership into a use it or lose it scheme, where in order to afford that tax burden, you got to do something with it. You got to use that land in a productive way that's going to generate revenue. Otherwise, you're basically going to bankrupt yourself by not by just holding onto this land and not generating any revenue to pay off the tax. And so obviously, like this kills land speculation, right? Because land speculators don't do anything productive productive with their land. They just hold on to it, wait for the community to do all the hard work of making the place a great place to live and then, you know, extort the community by selling it back to them at a value that they created. Um, and it forces significant infill development in our urban areas, increasing the housing supply, increasing real estate uh, supply and uh, creating more and more opportunities for people to live, for people to start businesses. Um, so it just makes our cities more vibrant um, and, and creates an economic incentive to create all the wonderful things that we enjoy about cities, all the reasons that people move to cities and create cities in the first place. And that's why I really like it, among a lot of other reasons, of course. So what are some, I think Matt mentioned Detroit earlier, what are some examples of cities that have adopted this successfully? So um, in the United States, most of the uh, land value tax cities today are out in Pennsylvania. And technically what they do is what's called split rate taxation, where they um, tax improvements or they, they tax land at a much higher ratio compared to improvements. So some cities out there will do like for every dollar um, in improvements that they tax, they'll tax $16 in land, for example, um, which is, you know, land value tax to an extent, right? It, it accomplishes the same thing. Um, but around the world, um, cities in Taiwan, uh, parts of Hong Kong, um, Denmark, let's see, parts of Ukraine, Singapore is probably the best example, not necessarily of land value tax, but land value capture. So since the government owns, I think like 90% of the land in Singapore, uh, the government leases out the land at a rate that is about equal to what they would collect in yearly taxes if that land were privately owned by people in the city instead. And they, you know, they, they get most of their government revenue from these land sales, right? And it's, it's kind of funny how, um, like, libertarians, like, right, libertarians especially, will hold up Singapore as this, as this, um, as this wonderful icon of, like, oh, look, look, here's a, here's, here's a government that doesn't have to rely on hardly any taxes. They have such low taxes on, on, on sales and basically nothing on income or corporate income. Oh, my God, see, like. Cutting taxes does great economic growth, guys. But the part that they always leave out, of course, is that it, they get it all from land value capture, right? Which is the most e efficient way to do this. Um, but there are cities in North America that used to have a much more powerful land value tax once upon a time. So Vancouver, British Columbia, back in 1914, actually had a 100% land value tax. And they did this like overnight, right? And it was incredibly successful. I mean, the, the city, uh, over the course of a few years, came into possession of thousands and thousands of plots of land that were basically acquired via bankruptcy court because they were previously held by land speculators who were not doing anything productive with them. And then the city used this land for very productive purposes. They made parks with it. They used it for public utilities and for just general public infrastructure. And it was going wonderfully. And then um, city council 
several years later got rid of the land value tax because it was working too well. Because what happened was is that the city was depending almost entirely off of land tax revenue to finance government services. And what this did is this kind of created a constituency of people of, of what were called um, ratepayers who were very irked about the idea that they were the ones that were facing the entire burden of, of, of the entire tax burden. And they felt that everybody else ought to be contributing towards the, the tax um, coffers um, since everyone was benefiting from from government expenditures. Right. And well, so it, they it, wanted it, to create a return. Well, what type of people were the ones that were bearing that brunt? Like what well, it, it was obviously landowners. It, well, landowners so the speculators right. lost all their land, but mm-hmm. if you're say uh, like a landlord, like what what is the impact on like you? Oh yeah, so from the perspective of a of a landlord, right? So in economic terms, uh, a, a landlord specifically is someone who just holds onto land and then does rent seeking from it, right? Which which literally means. Um, Create uh, collecting revenue uh, that is unearned income and an income that you receive specifically because you have the privilege of holding a monopoly over that thing. In this case, land, right? So you're not actually doing anything. You just hold hold the deed, and so you get to collect increases in value without having to contribute anything, right? So from the perspective of a landlord, post land value tax, they would no longer be able to collect. Uh, rent, they would no, no longer be able to do rent seeking off of their properties. Instead, what would happen is, is landlords would essentially just become building managers, right? Where um, they would still get to collect on the increases in property value, specifically the building, right? From improvements that they make on it, from maintenance of whatnot, any profits that they may make from hiring people uh, to work the leasing office or to do recruiting for new tenants or whatever, and just the general operations of the building, any profits that they make from that, all fair and square, all theirs, right? Um, but increases to the value of the land, essentially, right, again, rent-seeking, that gets taxed by the government, and they no longer get to get to keep that, essentially. And they don't so, like that, right, because rent-seeking is easy. You don't have to do any effort. And so people like, you know, people like to make money without doing anything. So, Yeah, so... If you're a city like Detroit or a city like Kansas City, when it comes to implementing this, um, there is a lot of, I mean, although Kansas City has a strong, you know, tenants union organization and uh, Mm -hmm. like a a push, uh, Kansas City has also uh, passed uh, laws basically limiting Airbnbs almost entirely. Um, There is still, you know, large scale property owners land speculators and uh, people who own parking lots or uh, land that is a uh, low-value business on a pretty high-value piece of land, they're the ones taking the impact from this, right? Right, yeah. And I think, so the Detroit mayor, Mike Duggan, he's, he's done a fantastic job uh, politically speaking, because I mean, and and the people that you're talking about are very politically organized, right? So they're going to take all the burden, and they also have most of the political power, and they're just much better at organizing than your average citizen diffuse interest, right? So what this uh, the mayor of Detroit has been doing is he's been very open and has done a fantastic job at spreading the educational awareness of the land value tax effects on the average person. So ninety seven percent 
of homeowners in Detroit will see a tax decrease. And this kind of makes sense, right? Because on average houses or single family houses, anywhere between 30 to 40% of the property is land. And so if you're shifting away from taxing buildings and improvements, and instead you're increasing taxes on land, and in Detroit's case, it's revenue neutral, but even if, you, even if you're going to increase revenue, this still holds true. Um, the vast, vast majority of homeowners are going to see tax decreases. So if 97% of your constituency is going to make out with more money and land speculators who are being who are, who are sapping away at the productive value of the community are going to be the ones that are going to lose out. Um, there's a very strong political uh, support there for for passing this, right? Because this is also being done through a ballot initiative. So by turning out those folks and being like, "Hey, no, you're going to actually gonna, you're going to you're going to do much better under this," right? I think he's done a fantastic job at, at uh, growing support on the ground for a land value tax. And the same would be very much true in Kansas City or pretty much really anywhere where you, where you would uh, do this tax shift. So, yeah, long story short, I think the best way to do it is to, politically is to follow what, uh, what the uh, mayor of Detroit has been doing. And I'm, I'm very excited to see uh, an elected official um, so passionate and doing such an effective job at spreading awareness and educating public about the, the benefits of the land value tax. Now, um, Kansas City has uh, a issue where uh, a large, large portion of the uh, city budget is basically forced to go to the police. Um, this is mm. Kansas City doesn't actually control its own police department. Uh, the state of Missouri does. And the state of Missouri can also put a ballot initiative up to the entire state to force Kansas City to uh, increase its budget, basically meaning that the taxpayers of Kansas City uh, are like coerced to doing uh, funding in their own city based off of the wills of people who don't live in the city but live within the state of Missouri. Yeah. How th this is can cause budget issues and uh, will eventually probably rear its ugly head uh, as, you know, the not to play into culture war stuff, but the fact that police funding has become such a hot button culture war topic that Missouri last election cycle proved that basically the state could hold Kansas City budget uh, financially hostage. Uh, with land value, that's a long way to get around uh, how much, to the question, how much money could Kansas City make by doing a land value tax compared to their already traditional sales income and property taxes? That's a good question. So I tried to go through Jackson County uh, before this. I tried to go through Cam Jack Jackson County property tax um, as, well as, as well as Wyandotte um, property tax uh, GIS data sets. And unfortunately... Like most counties across the United States, they lump together um, building and land value assessments as basically the exact same thing, right? Into just all one whole um, property assessment. So the only way I would be able to actually provide a concrete number is if I were to go through and create my own GIS regression model using basically parking lots and vacant lots to make a gradient across Kansas City and calculate that myself. Um, but what I can say is, and, and this is kind of generally true-ish, 
Um, so in the case of Seattle, um, we're very blessed that King County does separate uh, assessments between land value and improvement value. So in King County, um, there is roughly about $32 billion of land value tax revenue that could be generated every year. And well, $32 billion in the first year, right? Like land values, as we know, land value goes up pretty much every single year. So um, it would be increasing year after year after levying a land value tax pretty significantly since land value tax makes land uh, much more productive so, and therefore wait, it, it, value. So what is King County's actual like budget? Like what is their budget from the taxes they earn currently? So the city of Seattle right now spends about seven and a half billion dollars. Um, and the King County 2022 budget is roughly, I think, 15 billion or so. So we're talking about at least a double in the um, operating budget that you could have from public from public land value capture through through a land value tax, right? And and this also, of course, in, is is a world in which we're no longer taxing sales, we're no longer taxing improvements, we're no longer taxing business income, we're no longer um, taxing pretty much anything else. If you wanted to rely entirely on a land tax, you could double the budget of King County. So in the hypothetical uh, situation of this is uh, superimposed onto Kansas City, mm-hmm. um, the e-tax, which is a 1% income tax for uh, funding a bunch of stuff throughout the city, no longer would need to pay that. Um, right. Even if it's implemented at a statewide level, I know you live in Washington State, which doesn't have a state income tax, but uh, you could basically, if you had land value tax, dissolve state income tax do the joys of uh, weird libertarians who think you need licenses for toasters uh, everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, and, and and you don't have to be you don't have to be like Texas who doesn't who doesn't have a state income tax but has property taxes up the wazoo. Right, exactly. And well, and and I will say too, in Washington's case, we have we have I think the most regressive tax system uh, in the United States, and it's not because we don't have income tax, but it's because we depend on sales taxes for pretty much most things, um, which is obviously very regressive on the working class. Um, I mean, it's, it's nice that we don't have income. And, and there are, unfortunately, people here who are pushing very hard for an income tax. And I think that's kind of just a, a product of most progressives. And I'm you know, speaking as, as a very ardent progressive um, who, who believe that income taxes or a progressive income tax bracket is like the end all be all. Um, progressive tax, right? Which is very unfortunate to see people advocating for taxing labor when taxing land is very much an option and always has been an option right there. And in in my opinion, is the definitive wealth tax anyway, because the burden will be uh, disproportionately borne by uh, wealthy landowners, right? Which like, they're they're all they're all wealthy they're all rich as hell right um and and on top of that it's it's wealth derived from a a a good that was not created by anybody right like no one even if you believe in god right like no man no person created the land it's it's natural it's created by you know literally anybody people humanity but the value is publicly created entirely well no one created the land until the uh until they expand manhattan right go into the bay true although like 
that if you're if you're talking about like land reclamation, which which is the thing that does come up, technically what that is is it's not creating new land, but instead it's just moving water somewhere else because the land underneath has always been there, right? Um, so all you're really doing is just, I mean, it's in the name, right? It's land reclaiming. Um, you're just making the land underneath more productive. You mean to tell me that I just can't like uh, build an island like in the South China Sea, uh, but it's somehow be American sovereign soil that is also have land value tax, but I'm exempt from land value tax because it used to be in the water and it's not actually original land. Actually, okay, so, you know, funny that you bring that up. So there are other ways of doing um, land value capture other than just taxing dirt. So um, land in the economic terms, right, doesn't just mean to the dirt, doesn't just refer to the dirt. It's uh, in reference to naturally occurring commodities that are fixed in supply and come with location rent. So that's a lot of very fancy words, but some examples of that is like the ocean, for example, right? Like o the ocean point, you know, specific locations in the ocean are, are, are fixed and you can't like create more of a coordinate, right? So you can have rent seeking in the ocean. In fact, most major oil drilling companies do this all the time. Um, there are, you can collect rents from the electromagnetic spectrum because that is also fixed in supply. This is a problem that we have all the time with telecommunication companies who don't really compensate the uh, the community or, or the public writ large for their taking up space on the EM spectrum. And instead, the way that they get like deeds, if you will, or rights to use certain bands of the EM spectrum is by basically just bullying the shit out of the FCC using lobbyists. Um, there's land in orbit, right? So orbits are fixed. And this is a, now a growing problem with space debris where uh, satellite companies don't, again, same thing with telecommunications companies, they don't really have to pay any compensation for how they use um, certain, certain portions of orbit, certain, certain, yeah, certain orbits. Um, and so they're able to just sit there and do some rent seeking, right? And the only way that these things are resolved is not through any genuine like market forces or economic incentives. It's just who has the biggest corporate lobbying budget, um, which is obviously creating some very, terrible inefficiencies and um, just allows them to get away with just awful rent seeking up there to our detriment. We hate inefficiencies. That's we why do. we're going to tax the fish and the radio stations. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I fully support taxing radio stations. Absolutely. Yeah. Because like it is a problem really because, you know, I mean, it's, it's fixed in supply and I mean, they're in, in, in particularly busy areas, right? Where like, you've got a fixed number of frequencies that so many people are competing over. How do you determine really who gets to, who gets to use those, those spectrums, those frequencies, right? Like ultimately it's not about who uses it the most productively. It's who has the budget to lobby the SEC, right? Um, and you can do, you can do speculation on, on the spectrum. People do speculation on with internet domain addresses, right? Like, you don't actually have to use landvaluetax.com uh, to keep landvaluetax.com, right? You can just sit on it. Um, and then eventually, whenever it gets popular enough due to community demand or whatever, you can you can extort the, the next buyer who would come along and want to use it. Um, I mean, we, we've seen internet domain addresses be sold for millions and millions of dollars. And the only reason that's the case is because... I mean, that, that, was, that was part of the dot-com boom, right? Where, yeah. like... There were just people buying internet domains just like 
before you know like your bank got on and this was uh so prolific that even snl made a skit uh right before the dot-com boom where it was just like we your bank uh didn't actually go out and, and become an internet bank until just now but <laughs> sadly we were too late to get a domain name so we are now at this like stupid domain name i'm totally destroying a a good snl bit but you can go look it up yeah. no yeah exactly it's, it's, a lot better than... yeah yeah yeah. It's, it's, it's a huge problem and um and you know i think ultimately and and, and this i think really uh says to the to the broad appeal of land value tax whenever people start to learn more about it is that it's it's ultimately concerned with getting rid of, I mean, yeah, speculation, but um, really just rent seeking and un, unproductive behavior, right? Um, and 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 reduce and reducing and eliminating monopolies, which people tend to dislike, unless you are the monopoly yourself, right? People generally hate um, undue monopolies, like on land, on internet domain addresses, and that kind of thing, and um, yeah, that's what land value tax is primarily concerned with, is, is the monopoly, the private monopoly that comes with unchecked land ownership. So what are some resources for the uh, very uh, early on Georgists who have gotten to this point in the podcast to mm. uh, look into, um, like just give us a short list of stuff that they could uh, go to after this podcast. So what I would say you should check out is because I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take a guess based on how I've listened to some of these earlier episodes. The most listeners are of the um, urbanist persuasion. And if that's the case, uh, you dear listener have probably heard of strong towns. If you have not, you should look up strong towns because they're fantastic. Um, but strong towns has a huge and super in-depth series on land value tax because they're super, super land tax built. Um, they, have, they have brochures and, and primers on how to advocate for land value tax in your city or your state or whatever, and also talking about just how it works in general. Um, they have specific case-by-case -case examples of like how this a land tax shift would affect um, city budgets, how it would affect the tax burden of different types of properties. So going to strong towns and looking at their various resources would be a great way to start. I would also um, definitely recommend the um, shout out to Mr. Beat, not Mr. Beast, but Mr. Beat, who is a Lawrence, Kansas YouTuber and has a video about land value tax. And he also talks about the history of Georgism and Henry George as well. Um, so you can you can literally just look up. Uh, I, think, I think the title of the video is I found the least bad tax or something like that. Um, or you can just look up Mr. Bean and land value tax and it'll, it'll come up. And that's a very short, I think, 10 to 15 minute video. Um, but if you're more into also just kind of reading the story of land value tax and, um, and, and Henry George in general, I think the thing that, well, what got me into land value tax and what, have, what, what has also really kicked off a lot of pandemic era, I guess I'll call it. Um, land value tax enthusiasm was Lars Dusitz. I'm gonna I'm butchering his last name, but it's like D O U C E T. Um, Progress and Poverty book review. Progress and Poverty is the book that Henry George wrote in like the 1870s or something um, that outlined his his issues with land ownership, private land ownership, and then he talks about what the solution is, which is which is a land value tax. Um, it's on the Astral Codex, which is like this blog where they uh post you know long written stories 
But if you look, if you Google, I'm going to try it right now. Lars, like L-A-R-S, and then D-O-U-C-E-T, and then land is a big is a big deal, is what his um, thing is called. Yeah, land is a big deal. And just read through that. It's very long, very detailed, but it goes through everything. And at the end of it, you hopefully won't have any questions about land value tax, and you'll hopefully be um, land pilled and maybe even George pilled uh, if you want to uh, go that far. Um, but yeah, that's what I would highly encourage uh, people to look into. And I will warn you once no. once you get into it. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a rabbit hole. And if you get into it deep enough, and once it all starts to make sense, you you start to see the cat, as Georges will say, which which refers to walking around and seeing vacant lots in in highly productive areas, and you'll start to understand why do these vacant lots exist? Why is there all this economic demand, all this productivity, and yet we've got land held out? not in use right and um and a variety of other issues as well it all kind of starts to make sense um so yeah yeah i uh, i hear about land value tax on an almost daily basis from ben uh so i'm just gonna let you know that this might ruin your life if you do look into it yeah. uh we will uh put the links to a lot of that stuff that ben has suggested in the description of the podcast uh you'll be able to check that out um Finally, the one thing I do want to go over, though, is uh, do you prefer, like, land value tax enthusiasts? Do you prefer LVT, or do you prefer being called a Georgist? Oh, okay, so I'll try to keep this brief. Um, I'm more of a... So, I, I, first of all, I'm, I'm a socialist, right? And I am also a land value tax enthusiast. I incorporate land value tax into my into my view of, um, of, of socialism, specifically kind of like the libertarian market socialist flavor. Because ultimately what land value tax is to me is it's public capture of publicly created land value, right? It's the redistribution of what is created by the public back into the hands of the public, which is very socialist in my opinion. Unfortunately, most Georgists do not, I mean, they don't consider themselves socialists per se. They're very much like, they kind of do see themselves as this, oh, we're not socialists, we're not capitalists, we're our own entire thing. Um, and I can understand why they would, why they would get to that. Um, but I don't consider myself Georgia's not necessarily because of that, but because the average Georgia's or at least the online ones are incredibly cringe. Um, the long story short on this is that for the last hundred years or so, Georgism and yeah, Georgism mostly has been kind of written off by neoclassical economists for unfair reasons. And so it's hard for the average Georgist to find company among economists until until recently. Actually, economics has been has been finally embracing um, Georgism and some of its policy prescriptions, but especially the land value tax. Um, and so, as a result of that, because they've been kind of you know shrugged off by the uh, economist community, they find themselves in in uh, friendly camps with other types of folks who have been shrugged off by the economist community, particularly Austrian. Uh, I'm using air quotes here, economists. And so a lot of Georgists will find themselves falling into, I don't want to say conspiratorial thinking, but um, non-critical thinking about economic issues. And it's kind of sad because they're very much right about the land issue. And so they, you know, they see the cat on that one. They see the land issue and how it affects everything. And so they think they stumbled upon something that nobody else has, which in some regards is very much true. And so then they take that sort of thinking to like literally everything else, right? Has as Austrians have with monetary policy, and so they will 
let themselves get into certain mindsets about economics and public policy that is just totally off base, whack as hell, and um, just kind of makes it difficult to give the Georgist movement any and all credibility. So I'm more concerned with the tax policy itself, because that is for sure, it has, has a mountain of evidence backing it up. It's effective. We know it works. We have real world examples of it working. It's not some theoretical thing. Um, it doesn't require, you know, um, yeah, it doesn't require theory or anything like that. It, it works. We know it works. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really ideologically Georgist, but I do sympathize with anti-monopolism, of course. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a socialist who really, really likes taxing landowners and, and especially landlords. Well, that is, uh, I mean, probably the best way to go about it from my understanding, but also, uh, all of my land value tax understanding comes from, uh, you, Ben, uh, if there's any, uh, uh, economic PhD programs that are looking for a good candidate, uh, check out Thank Ben. You. I mean, be a good fit for that. Yeah, if you happen to be a PhD who's in charge of a major college who's listening to this podcast, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Honestly, well, I hope to one day be a PhD econ candidate uh, also listening to this podcast. So I, I would love to join that company. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, any uh, any final like uh, comments or uh, thoughts you have, Ben, or any like shout outs you want to do? doesn't have to be about land value tax. Oh, can it be about land value tax? Because this is the thing that I, I, I talk to about. I talk to people about this every goddamn day. This has, you know, Matt, ever since you introduced me to this shit back in 2020, it has consumed my life. Um, it is impossible to go on. Wait, Matt, uh, you introduced oh, me? Oh, okay, I, I, found, I found the Mr. Beat YouTube <laughs> video, and uh, we, we watched it together, yeah. and then I didn't think anything of it until he came back back like uh, like a month later with just like an entire rant and like excel spreadsheets yeah i've been ruined Lord. by this um in a, in a very good way right because you know I, i'm i'm applying to grad school programs to study this and I, I i am very interested in land economics as unsexy as it may be um it affects a lot of things and um i guess what i would say to anyone who's listening who, who might become interested i hope in land taxation and making our cities more financially solvent, more financially sustainable, instead of relying on these other regressive forms of taxation, um, you know, get involved in your local politics. Get in, find out who's running uh, for local city council. Read read about um, land value tax. Look at strong towns. Right. Learn learn uh, the, the, you know some of the details of this. You don't have to become an expert. You don't have to become like a land tax foamer like myself to make a difference. Um, just having a, a, a general idea of what land tax can do and how it can benefit your cities. And then with that, get involved in local politics. Talk to your city councilors. Talk to your King or not King County. Talk to your county councilors. If you do live in King County, definitely talk to your King County councilors about this. Uh, we need all the help we can get out here. But yeah, get involved and um, talk to political candidates. Talk to your legislators, your political representatives about this. Um, because ultimately, what the, the only reason why it doesn't the main reason why it doesn't exist in the first place is because there's just not a lot of, um, it's just not well known. It's kind of a niche thing. It used to be very popular a long time ago and now it's not for historically contingent reasons, but we can change that, right? And it doesn't take much to, to change it in the first place, right? Uh, the United States has been, over its entire history, has been shaped 
very, uh, very aggressively by small groups of people who get very politically active, especially at the local level. And so if you're interested in this and if you want to, again, see your cities thrive and be financially prosperous, uh, be part of that small group of people who gets really, really into tax policy and zoning and parking minimums and urbanism writ large. Show up to your city council meetings and and tell them to stop taxing homes and start taxing land. So uh, go out there, go with God, and uh, seize the cat and tax the land. All right, awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Ben, for coming on. Uh, this has been. Uh, oh, is there any? Is there anything? Do you want people to be able to find you? Do you want to like plug? Oh, um, I don't think I have anything public to plug. I mean, you, I you will probably see my name come up in an urbanist article sometime in, in, in the near future about land value tax in Seattle. So um, if you do read the urbanist, if you're in the Puget Sound area, watch out for that. Um, yeah, I'm just going to plug Strong Towns. Look at the Strong Towns land value tax series. Um, that's, that's the main thing I want to plug for sure. All right. Uh, well, this has been another episode of Clio Talk. I've been Matt. And I have been RC. And we ben have Furlow. had... Yeah. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Clio History. You can email us at cleohistorypodcast at gmail.com. We are available wherever you get podcasts. Uh, likes, shares, and reviews really do help us in the algorithm. Uh, we have had uh, some pretty good success. If you want to see uh, more uh, COVID or Casey mob stories, because that seems like what you guys actually want out of us these days, yeah. um, we can. Oh, if you want to send me angry emails about this episode, we will forward them to Ben. And oh, I will. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, yeah. So uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Ciao, ciao. Uh, bye. Bye.